You're listening to the Inside Intercom Podcast. Hi, I'm Des Trainer, and today I'm delighted to be talking to Margaret Gold-Stewart, who is Director of Product Design at Facebook. Hi, Margaret. Hi. For the sake of our audience and our listeners, could you please introduce yourself and maybe some of your background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have been at Facebook for a little over three years. Um, have been in uh, high tech and designing uh, large scale platforms for most of my career. Previously, uh, led design at YouTube and at Google for search and consumer products. Awesome, quite, quite a career to work as a designer at two of the probably biggest software companies ever. Um, yeah, so, so I'm very very lucky to work with a lot of smart people on amazing products. For sure. Uh, so uh, to get I guess straight into our material. Um, Recently, Facebook announced that there was a day that had a, a billion daily users. Uh, that must intimidate the hell out of a design team. You talked before about one of the requirements of the scale for that work is that you have to have a sort of a sense of audacity that you believe you can design for that many people, but also a sense of humility in that you have to take yourself out of the design process. How do you balance these together? I think it's a really big challenge, but it's an exciting one. It's why I've invested so much of my career in this kind of work. And I think striking a balance between those two things is the key, because if you're all audaciousness, then you you tend to lose sight of what matters, which is the people that you're designing for and the impact that you're having on their lives. And if, uh, you know, if you, if you lack that humility, but if you also are all about humility and you don't have, uh, some risk taking and, uh, kind of audaciousness in your approach, you may not actually grapple and tackle the big, big challenges and questions and, and uh, problems that are going to make it a big impact in, in the world and in society. Um, so I think, you know, having that combination is, is, is critical to this work, and it's something that I certainly look for in designers um, to become a part of my team. Um, and, and also just to provide, you know, the opportunities for people to cultivate that balance over time, because it's it can be quite an intimidating prospect to, you know, on, on, on day, you know, day two of work, start to work on surfaces and designing for surfaces that, you know, potentially millions, if not billions of people are going to interact with. Right. And is it like, uh, you know, do you have to coach both sides of it? Like, is it, are you trying to encourage some designers to be a little bit like a little bit braver? And and at the same time, you're trying to encourage other designers to maybe realize it's not just them. Is that like what you do? Yeah, I think that, you know, often what it is, is uh, leveraging experiences where people can um, experience what it, it, feels like to use products uh, as everyday folks, whether they're business users or consumers, and to take yourself out of your own experience. And that is what creates kind of the humility and the empathy. Um, But also to encourage people to think big and think bold about some of the problems that they could solve. And and so I think it's really about kind of respecting uh, both aspects of the work um, and, you know, making sure that a team has, uh, as individuals, but also as a team has a good balance, uh, of that. And I think it's also reflected in our design process. Um, you know, we are uh, a company, um, and, you know, many companies that are in this space are full of super smart and creative and, uh, and highly motivated people, people with a lot of innovative ideas about what they could do, what they could build. But there's also a lot of ways that you can gather data and um, kind of bring the people that you're designing for uh, into the design process so that it's not just about you and your ideas, but it's also about uh, kind of um, looking outside of your own experience 
to, to enrich your perspective and understand, you know, what problems are worth solving and what's the most effective way to solve it uh, on behalf of the, the people of the world. Right. And like, even when you think like the, the language you use is so interesting, like the people of the world, because that really is like the, the addressable market, if you like, like a billion users. Is it even possible to understand a billion users? Like, you know, when you think of all the standard UX techniques, like user journeys, storyboards, personas, like does any of that work at the scale that you design at? It can be challenging, right? Because you're really at some level designing for kind of the whole human race. Right. <laughs> <Which> is, <laughs> no pressure. I don't know what more audacious <laughs> goal there could be. You know, and I think that's part of what it is. It's like the audaciousness is not just the way in which you engage in the product, in, in the process, but also saying, you know, could my work be relevant to that many people? That's kind of an audacious notion. Um, but I think we've seen, you know, with Google search that it, it does have that impact. People are that much in need of, of finding information, understanding the world around them, that that is a universal human need. You know, with YouTube, it is a universal need for people to creatively express themselves, right? That is, that you know, to, to educate themselves and other people. That is an enduring human need. And with Facebook, you know, perhaps the most enduring human need of all, to feel connected and loved, right? These are kind of audacious notions that you can use technology to address, but those are three examples where, you know, there's been a huge amount of success in creating something that seems to have almost universal uh, relevance and value to people. And then the trick is, you know, getting back to your question, how do you understand that enormously diverse population of people and understand what what aspects are universal and which actually need to take into account the particular context in which people are living and working um, day to day, which can differ quite dramatically. Um, and so, you know, user research obviously is completely critical to everything that we do. Um, data analysis, so we can understand the macro trends um, and not actually skew too much towards the qualitative. I mean, this is all about balance, right. bringing a variety of different data sources together to get a holistic understanding of what's going on and how to respond to it. What does user research look like for like, a, I mean, my experience with user research has been, well, we'll talk to like 30 or 60 or 90 people, but like, you know, that's, you know, that, that seems justifiable when you're talking to thousands or even tens of thousands, but like, how do you, how, do you guys, uh, do you keep a, a sort of archetypical set of people who you think to define most of your types of users or, like, you know, do you actually conduct like 100,000 errors per feature or what does it look like? Well, I mean, it, it, it so dramatically depends on the context. You know, with an existing product that is a ton of usage, there's going to be a particular approach to that. If we're developing something new from, you know, from scratch, there's going to be a different approach. I will say that, you know, there's still, you know, if you have a given interface and you're looking at kind of a tactical level, say, can people understand how this flow works and from a usability perspective, get through it? The same rules apply where like seven to 10 people that are like well recruited can actually help you understand whether or not, you know, a particular task is understandable and doable by the vast majority of people. I think the trick is in terms of the value that you're providing and people's likelihood to kind of access it and understand it, there are a lot of regional differences and cultural differences that can, can you know, impact um, people's use of a product. And so I would say that, you know, some of the most 
um, impactful research that we do is, you know, going into particular countries and communities to say, you know, what is the nature of how small businesses work in India or in Indonesia or in Brazil? What are the challenges that people have you know, in transacting in those environments or in connecting with friends? What are the social norms around connecting with friends and family that may differ dramatically from culture to culture? And so a lot of it is more on the kind of early stage, almost ethnographic side of things. And, right. you know, and then we just do right. a ton of validation work. I mean, you have to, when you have so many people relying on us to get these things right, right? We don't release anything without it being tested nine ways to Sunday, um, because that's the reality of the responsibility of what we do. When you like, uh, when you like read design articles and design blogs, is it like, is it, a, you know, appallingly hard for you to take anyone else's like, uh, work like <laughs> seriously when they're like, you're like, yep, I'm sure that works when you've got 15,000 users. Like, it, is there anyone you can actually look to? Oh no, absolutely. I think that there's, you know, there's so much to learn in, in so much of the work that's going on across the industry, whether it's at small scale or large scale. And don't forget, you know, we invent new products that have, that start out with a user base of zero, you know, that's like, that's, that's something that we do. And so, you know, we obviously have a lot of experience growing and scaling things quickly. We have certain, you know, uh, advantages to having a brand that is very well known and, you know, that can help, um, kind of jumpstart a project, but, you know, there's a big difference between, you know, the work that the Instagram team did in designing and releasing something like hyperlapse versus the team that works on refining the experience of the Facebook newsfeed, right? I mean, those are dramatically different design contexts. So, you know, it's not like all of the different projects, um, kind of work in the same way, uh, even within the company of Facebook. And that's true for other companies like us. So I think that there's quite a bit of variety. And so there's a lot that we learn from smaller companies, um, projects that are working at a smaller scale. I also think, you know, it's extremely useful for us to see the level of experimentation and innovation that goes on that doesn't have the constraint of, you know, millions of users, right? right. There's a certain uh, kind of, obviously, uh, kind of care that we need to take in introducing too much radical change in a context where there's so much current usage. And so, you know, we're always excited to see people experimenting, you know, in early stage because it, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting to see what people do from a blank slate. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's a different context, but I think it's still very valuable from a design community point of view. For sure. Um, Related, uh, somewhat related, I guess, you've said before, like, you're a big believer in not just, like, designing, like, for people, but also designing with people. Could you explain what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it gets back to that, you know, humility thing. Um, I think as a, as a company, um, and I think most smart companies in the high-tech industry operate this way, you don't believe that all of the good ideas exist within your own company, right? A lot of the genius of the world exists outside, even though we have a ton of smart people, I think just from a percentage point of view, you know, there's going to be a lot of 
interesting ideas. That's why, you know, our API and third-party development um, community and our developer community is so important to us is that great ideas come from outside of Facebook. And, and I think the idea of designing with people and not just for people is recognizing that even, you know, the consumers that use our products are an active contributing um, force in our design process. When, when we release something and we have lots of people using it, we take a lot of time to observe that usage and to learn from it. And, you know, there's so many examples of people taking a product that was designed to do X and they just take it in a totally different direction of Y. <laughs> and, right. you know, you can sit back and say, hey, stop doing that. That's not what I designed it for. Or you can say, ooh, like, wow. Let's let's see where this thing goes. And maybe it's much more valuable than the thing that we originally thought or just a new use for a technology that's been sitting around for a long time. I mean, a great example of this is, you know, the fact that Facebook wasn't originally designed or developed to become uh, like a crisis communication channel. But we observed in many different contexts, but I think most um, distinctly in the you know kind of tsunami post tsunami crisis in Japan of people using Facebook as a critical platform to check in and make sure that their loved ones were safe and accounted for. This and this was this wasn't something that we designed. Uh, this was just an emergent behavior that we observed, and so then we were able to say, well, how can we make that process easier to discover and use? Which is how the safety check product came into being. But that was a that was an experience and really a product that the community designed for itself. I think you see that, you know, with hashtags on Twitter. Yeah. That wasn't a product or an experience that Twitter developed. They just observed it and they were smart enough to say, oh, you know what? This is actually dramatically improving the usability of um, of the, the system. And so let's design around that. That's really interesting. I mean, I think there's a famous uh, business quote by Theodore Levitt who said once like that the, the customer rarely buys what the company thinks it sells. I wonder, is there a design equivalent where the user really uses what the designer thinks they designed? Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. 
That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Unlike, uh, unlike design and specifically, I guess, design for B2B versus B2C, uh, what, you know, you've worked on both sides. What are the key differences between uh, designing B2B software and B2C? Well, I think the most fundamental thing is, while, you know, it's great for business products to be fun and engaging, that is not the purpose of their use, right? People right. are trying to get their work, their work done. And, uh, you know, the notions of what a high quality product are, are pretty different in those contexts. Um, you know, a, a good example is with consumer products, generally speaking, the amount of time that people are spending use it, using it is a, is a pretty good metric to, to decide, you know, have you built something that's engaging, right? And so you look to be like, how much time each day are people using this product? On the business side, time spent is an anti-goal. Right? Right, yeah, yeah. We want people to be able to generate more business value in less time. And so, you know, we we do not track time spent as a key success metric. We track it because we're interested in understanding from a task level how to shave off time, especially on repetitive tasks. But what we're really looking for business value that's generated by that use. So that's just a simple example of you know, a metric that's that's pretty different on the consumer versus business side. Um, and, and there's lots of those examples that are at stake. And it's been interesting for me, having spent most of my career on the consumer side, to kind of orient myself to this space and say, you know, what does success mean? What does delight mean in the business context? And it's just really interesting to see how that plays out when people, you know, when their jobs and their livelihoods depend on them being successful and competent in, in the use of any any given product. It's yeah. It, it's kind of quite interesting when you think of like the, like there's like in some sense there's like some mythical uh, fantasy B two B product where no one ever actually has to use it, but everyone spends a lot of money on it, and that like it, it's so well designed <laughs> that it's a system people pay to fuel or something like that. And then on the totally. extreme, you have like the world's most addictive B two C product that everyone spends it all the time. Everyone spends all their time in. It's a uh, it's interesting as well to me, like that. Like there are lots of ways to hack the goal of, like, say, maximizing time and time and app. For example, if it took longer to load, people would spend more time there, you know. Uh, yeah. But um, I get, you know, something else that's interesting is um, if you're making a change in a design on B two B versus B two C, you run the risk of either breaking somebody's workflow and just really messing up their day on the B two B side. Versus like facing the ire of an unhappy community uh, on the B to C side, um, yeah. This, this came up. I, I think you worked before on a, on YouTube's rating system, and that 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 was changed. Could you talk us through uh, what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, change a version. I mean, that's like that's a topic for a, an entire discussion in and of itself. Because you know, you end up becoming a bit of a victim of your own success when you build up a user base for uh, for a product that's you know meeting a need, and then it just becomes increasingly more difficult to change and evolve that product because people don't like change. You know, I mean, even if it's an empirically better design, um, there can be a lot of resistance to it. Now, certainly, there's going to be resistance to bad change. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah. And we should always test and iterate and be, uh, you know, have the humility to admit when we've made a mistake, right? And to retract and revert as needed. Hopefully, if you have a really solid kind of testing process, 
you know, the instances where you make a dramatic change that is the wrong change, you know, is hopefully, you know, pretty rare. But, you know, even when everything is right, people often initially respond pretty poorly. And I think, you know, on the consumer side, it's just a question of just the sheer number of people that are having to rework habits. You know, we develop muscle memory in our use of digital products. And so it's hard when, you know, people move things around or the flows change to say nothing of features being removed. On the business side, it's even more complicated because if it's a tool that you're using, say, you know, six to eight hours a day, that muscle member is even more intense than it is for something that you may be using for a few minutes a day. And, you know, I, I, I've often, often said, um, you know, people can get very efficient at using bad design. And so, you know, even when you put something better in front of them, it is legitimately frustrating because you kind of have to ha learn how to reuse the new version. Um, and so, you know, being cognizant of that, making sure that the value that you are introducing outweighs the cost of them having to relearn is really important. That's like a, a balance that you always have to be very cognizant of. Um, you know, warning people that the change is coming is really, really important so they don't just wake up one day and their earth is, you know, their, their world is turned around. And I think that was, you know, getting back to the YouTube rating system right. question is a really good example of this. So, you know, this was years ago, um, trying to think of what year it actually was. It was probably about maybe 2009. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm not totally sure of the exact time range, but in that, in that range. And, you know, we're kind of looking at the data around how people were using the rating system at the time, it was a five-star rating system, you know, to rate yeah. any given YouTube video. And we looked at the data and it was pretty clear, like a handful of people were using one star almost everyone else was using five stars and nobody was using two, three, and four. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the community was clearly telling us through our behavior, this is like an overly complicated rating system. Like I do not want with short form video. I do not want the cognitive load to have to think through five layers of value or five levels of value. I either like it or I don't. And mostly I don't care enough to tell you that I don't like it. I just want to tell you when I like it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, but the thing is, is a lot of the video creators and even the community had really gotten used to this five-star rating system. Um, and so, you know, they're quite attached to it, the creators in particular, because I think a lot of the, the, the social equity and, and the value of their presence on YouTube seemed to be wrapped up in these star ratings. And, you know, what basically what we did was we in advance of releasing the change to a, a binary up-down rating system, which still exists today, we basically published the data graph <laughs> that showed you know, what the usage was. And we kind of posed the question to the community, hey, we're seeing some kind of interesting things in the data. You know, what do you guys make of this? And of course, all of the comments, you know, in, in on this blog post were like, yeah, you know, this is obviously like a broken system. You don't need all of this complication. And I think people came to their own conclusions. Um, and, you know, it also resulted in one of my favorite TechCrunch headlines of all time, which I believe was something akin to YouTube has a five-star realization. Its rating system doesn't work, which is <laughs> 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 quite witty. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I guess suffice it to say, 
the data helped us understand and make a really, um, I think, powerful uh, design decision that was in the interest of the community. And the way that we approached it showed respect to the community in terms of the, you know, the, the, the pain of going through that change um, and allowed them to kind of emotionally prepare themselves for it. And all things being equal, the change went pretty smoothly as a result. And of course, there are people who were upset and, yeah. you know, the standard riots and death threats yeah. <laughs> that um, result yeah. when you work on these kinds of products. But relatively speaking, it went quite smoothly. It's a good example, I think, of balancing audacity and humility in that uh, it's like, you know, it would be easy to make a sort of a quick change and just be like, duh, it doesn't work. But I think, you know, even handling, <laughs> yeah. you need to be even humble in how you handle the transition, right? Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, ultimately it's like, listen, all the people using our products are giving us so much value, especially when you work on these products that are largely through user-generated content. You have to have enormous respect for the community because you know what? We would be nothing without them. Right. And so to just go ahead and like make these unilateral changes, a without observing both, you know, with in a in a quantitative sense through data analysis, but also qualitative to find out what's really driving the behavior, and then communicating in an honest and open way about the rationality of our decisions, like we would basically be, you know, disrespecting them in in so many ways. And I think any any organization or team that wants to build a fruitful, sustainable relationship with the community has to approach it that way. Yeah, I really liked your 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 uh, your point as well about like um, that like this even the most world's most positive, obvious, fantastic improvement is still a change, and changes still come with a cost. I remember. I, we we had a situation here at Intercom once where we where we, we like in our words we fixed something, and what a, a user once said like I know you guys think you fixed it but I liked the way it was broken, and like it's it, it's a good reminder that people can actually like you know their workflow is way more important than your like than your design principles that you're trying to apply. That's right because again you know they have jobs and they get to decide if what you've produced is more valuable than what they used to have. I always say, you know, in, in, especially if I'm like talking to people about, you know, their careers, maybe they're looking to make a change. I always say, you know, you always trade old problems for new ones. You just need to like your new problems more than your old problems. <laughs> and that's, that's true in so many aspects of life, but it's true in design too, right? Okay. A new design is going to create new challenges. They just need to be like better ones um, than the ones that people used to work with. Um, because, you know, a new design is going to, you know, either create that challenge of, of reworking and, and relearning, um, and, you know, how much cost of that is, um, you know, kind of how much, how much cost is associated with that versus all of the new, um, kind of efficiencies they yeah. may win over time. Um, the, the YouTube rating system is a good example of like what would seem to be a relatively small change. Uh, you also spoke before about like, uh, say the like button and, uh, like, you know, the, I think it was 280 hours that went into designing it. Like uh, from the outset, like from the outside, especially it can seem like, you know, like, the, you know, that's a lot of design consideration into a very small UI component. Is, is, is that the right way to think about these things or, you know, is, is like pixel square footage, a, like, you know, a stupid way to think about it? Well, um, well, for, uh, let me, t I'll tell you a funny anecdote about that. Uh, so I mentioned this, I, I did a Ted talk, uh, a year and a half ago and I used this anecdote and, and I was rehearsing the speech 
with another TED speaker, what they'll often do is kind of pair you up with another speaker so you can kind of practice and, and get feedback. And the person I was paired up with was um, an astronomer, you know, and so he's right. he's studying, you know, the history of the universe and all this kind of stuff. And I, and I go through the talk and I said, all right, give me your feedback. You know, anything's on the table. What resonates? What doesn't? He's a lot. I love the whole thing. I think it's a great talk. The only piece that kind of fell flat for me was that story about the like button. Cause I don't know. I just to feel like, I don't know, 183 hours really isn't that long. <laughs> 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 and it's because he's dealing in like, you know, millennia, millions yeah. and billions of years. And I was like, well, in, in a, in a, in a, in a digital design context, 183 hours to work on a button. That's a long time. <laughs> so anything, anyway, it, it actually gets to the point of it's all a matter of context, right? Right. The, the fact is, if you agonized over, you know, a single tiny element of a really complex system, um, that may be a really poor use of your time, right? Like, are you really focused on the things that matter and the things that drive um, usage and good outcomes for whoever you're designing for? The case of the like button, and I would say, you know, things like you know, the YouTube player or, you know, the, the Google search input box, like those are elements and experiences that are seen and used so often every day that every detail of them matters, every single pixel, just because of the sheer exposure and usage they have in the world. And so it, they're kind of design problems that are very unique to a very small number of insanely widely used products. Um, and that's real. And it's because they're used by millions and sometimes over a billion people. They are translated into an incredible number of languages. They have to work and degrade gracefully in a whole bunch of different kinds of browsers on different kinds of phones. I mean, if you're going to design in a global context for a huge swath of the world population, like it is complicated to make even simple details work well for everybody. So that I think is a really interesting challenge um, that it, that is tied to working on these kinds of products. But I think you know, at the same time, you kind of learn to look at impact in different ways depending on the context. So in the consumer space, you really do have that volume, the millions and potentially over a billion people, and and those single elements. Um, being really important. I think what I've learned in the last three and a half years working on the business side of Facebook is that it's not just about the number of people using a product, but also the impact of the use of a product on people. And that's not exactly the same thing, right? So right. there's certain products that like not many people in the world see but they impact the lives of many more people. And business products are some of those things, right? Far fewer people use Facebook advertising products than they do the consumer products, but the use of those advertising tools impact the experience of everyone who uses Facebook. And, and that I think is a really important thing to think about when you're thinking about what problems are worth solving, what are the projects that are worth getting involved in, how do I prioritize what matters in those spaces? is, you know, having a very nuanced approach to thinking about what, what is quote important and what is impactful. Um, a friend of mine, uh, David Cronin, who heads up, a um, GE software design told me this story about, you know, his team and, um, getting involved in a project that had to do with the design of software that, uh, 
you know, is used in the, the running and management of nuclear power plants. Wow. Right? So this is just like a standard design engagement for GE. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I hope you put your A team on that. Cause that, that is kind of terrifying, right? Like this is software that's probably, I don't know, seen by like hundreds, maybe thousands of people, yeah. but the impact of the quality of that software could impact the future of the human race. I mean, not to put pressure on David Cronin. <laughs> yeah, Do you no. see what I mean? Yeah. I think as a as a society and as an industry, we're very caught up in like it's all about the numbers uh, and like the most used things and you know how many people are using it. But really, if we're thinking about systems like healthcare and advertising and government, all these really complex systems. There's a lot of products that are living in the shadows that may not be used by as many people, but kind of impact our lives on a daily basis. And I find that really interesting. For sure. It's, it's a whole new way to think about uh, impact of design and also a whole new way for designers to justify spending a couple of extra hours on their components. No, uh, no kidding. Yeah. Um, so to change uh, direction a little bit, like you've been involved in like uh, growing design teams at like two of probably the biggest software companies of all time at like Google and Facebook. What helps teams, in your experience, like thrive as they scale? Um, I think there's a few things. I mean, one is obviously you need to build uh, a culture that cares about quality. I don't think that really strong design teams thrive in a context that doesn't care about the experience of the people that you're building for. Um, because I think I think everyone cares about doing good work, um, right. but I think. Focusing on creating high quality products and having a culture that understands that very tricky balance between speed to market and quality is paramount. Like that's how you attract and retain great design talent is having a, a good pragmatic approach to that balance between speed and quality. And I think a huge part of that is having very tight collaborative working relationships with the different disciplines. So one of the things that I think doesn't work is creating, you know, an insular, you know, kind of ivory tower of design. I think strong design teams work in close collaboration with product management and uh, engineering and respects the contributions of the different disciplines, not just to product development in general, but to the design process. Um, so I think that's one of the things that I think is, is really crucial right. is respecting um, cross-discipline collaboration. And then more generally, and I think this is particularly true for companies that are designing at a global scale like Facebook, is just diversity with the team in general, diversity along the lines of gender, race, background, all kinds. Because, you know, a lot of tech companies, you know, are looking to have a global impact, but our workforce does not reflect the world population, right? Right. A lot of all white tech workers in the Bay Area, very smart and well-intentioned folks, but the lives that they have led and the context that they bring to their work is kind of limited in that sense. And so hiring the most diverse team possible and making sure that we leverage that diversity of point of view and life experience is just completely critical to us in terms of doing the work that we want to do and having the impact we want to do. And I think in that context, design really thrives because in it, you know, if, if our goal is to change people's lives in a positive way, we need to be designing in a human centered way. And that diversity is what allows us to really design, um, you know, for real people all around the world instead of just for ourselves. 
Do you take like to to ensure that that happens? Like, do you have to take a quantitative look at it early on to make sure? Like, it, you know, ha, ha, like, you know, I think what you describe makes sense. I'm just thinking through the implementation details of like if you're a design team of two and you go to ten and you go to fifty and you go to a hundred, like. Uh, should you be persistently asking the question, does the makeup of our product team match the makeup of our user base? Is that the key uh, idea here? Well, I think that, you know, listen, you have to hire the best talent possible. And I think what is critical is to try to build a pipeline of talent at the top of the hiring funnel that is as diverse as possible and then maintain incredibly high standards. Right. Um, so I don't think having quota systems is a good idea. Um, I, I think it's really important that at the top of the funnel, you say, let's get the most diverse candidate pool we possibly can and invest a lot in creating diversity at the top of the funnel. Right. So right. if there's bias built into your sourcing techniques, figure that out, because if you have a mostly male pipeline at the top, there are a lot of great women designers out there. What about the way that we are finding and discovering talent has some unconscious bias built into it? Now, when it comes to diversity in other respects, it can be tougher to solve those problems because the problem is like a very long-term one, right? Design schools are not turning out a lot of Black and Latino designers, just statistically. And right. so... In terms of achieving different aspects of racial diversity, you actually have to get into the middle schools and the high schools and helping develop curriculum to get kids excited about these these areas um, and careers and opportunities to encourage kind of design education and engineering education so that, you know, um, you know, kids in those communities and in those groups uh, see that as like an exciting opportunity for them. Um, because if you're just looking at the schools, you're going to be, you know, kind of fighting yeah. over the same very small percentage of talent. And it's just not a long term solution. For sure. You're also, I guess, limited to people who can afford to and like live in a place that lets them go to college as well, right? Like that's or to university. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, at Facebook, we have a really interesting program called Facebook University that looks to bring um, folks who, you know, represent these communities that we're really interested in bringing into the team, but who may not have had the opportunity to have the kind of training that would make them qualified for standard internships or full-time jobs. And we basically bring them in and train them over the course of the summer. So, you know, training, you know, very bright, uh, women, college students who may not have had the opportunity or even necessarily um, the inclination initially to be like, oh, you know, let me study software engineering. Because for a variety of reasons, it feels culturally like maybe that's not where their path would lead them. And to let them spend the summer learning how to code in a, a really safe and welcoming environment. And, you know, that is a pretty extraordinary opportunity to change the trajectory of somebody's career um, in, in a positive way. Uh, so I think that there's things that you need to do that are more kind of interventional, <laughs> depending on um, the community and the context. Right, right. It sounds like an awesome initiative as well. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think it's a it's a really important thing, and it's it's awesome that Facebook are uh, are like are you know kind of doing doing everything that that they are currently doing but also like they they kind of communicated so much like the unconscious bias visit video that they shared like has been really 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 eye-opening for yeah. a lot of software teams 
Um, so just, I guess, to talk about our, our last topic, um, it's something you've talked about a couple of times recently, but it's uh, aesthetics, I guess, in business software. Uh, you've said, you know, you've written about this before. Does does the beauty or the attractiveness of a product matter in a business context? Well, I think this is a really interesting question because I think, you know, Julie Zhu, who's um, one of my colleagues here and is an extraordinary writer on design. She publishes a lot on Medium. She She's talked about this in the past where it's like, listen, you know, there's <laughs> there's kind of a pecking order of, uh, of needs in, in design and designing good experiences. And the fact is, you know, beauty is great on top of something that's really usable and serves, uh, serves a, a real purpose and solves a real problem. Beauty on top of a product that is hard to use, um, and that doesn't really address a real need is not that useful. <laughs> right. The reality is that consumer design has come a long, long way in terms of addressing real human needs and actually becoming more and more usable over the years. And so we've gotten into the context where, you know, delight and beauty on top of that strong foundation of usability and usefulness is, man, it's just so powerful. It's what everyone wants. And increasingly in the consumer context, it's what everyone expects. Business software, generally speaking, is still trying to grapple with that middle section of just being use, usable, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> and so, of course, people want beauty and delight in their work context, especially because they experience it on a reasonably frequent basis in their personal lives using consumer products. And the pent up, you know, kind of frustration you can feel is mounting in the world where they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm using these consumer applications and these beautiful Apple products. And then I go to work and like, these products are, you know, awful. <laughs> like, I mean, right. you know, so people are smart. They're figuring out that like, you know, the, the business tools and the productivity tools have a long way to go. The thing is you can't, you're never going to trade off beauty before you get the usability. But I can tell you right now, it is not an either or situation. Like you've got to be solving the right problems and make sure like in, in our context, working on the advertising tools of Facebook, ultimately what matters is the creation of business value, right? So we've got to solve the right problems for businesses, the ones that really matter. We've got to do it in a way that people can access and use. And then we have to figure out how to make them feel great while they're using it. Now what beauty and delight means in a business context may look and feel a little different than in the consumer context, right? Because you're getting work done. And so, you know, the aesthetics of that are probably going to always be a little bit different than what you might see in a purely consumer context. But that notion of craft and quality and attention to detail absolutely is critical. It just needs to be done on a foundation of usefulness and, and usability. Does that make sense? And it makes absolute sense. I think that that's a wonderful place where we can uh, sign off this idea that beauty is as impactful a layer. It just has to sit uh, on top of a usable foundation to begin with. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Margaret. I really, really appreciate it. I know our listeners will enjoy this. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation to chat. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. 
And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io.